finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things and we talk about them. Uh, sometimes the things that we read are a comic book, and sometimes those comic books are part of a longer series, and sometimes they're the fourth one in that series, and uh, that's this this is that episode. I'm describing the current episode, which is about The Wicked and the Divine, Volume 4, Rising Action, written by Karen Gillan, drawn by Jamie McKelvey, uh, colored by Matthew Wilson, and lettered by Clayton Cowles. And, uh, oh, also, I'm, we are, we did introduce ourselves. But Andrea is my mom and a librarian. And Nate is a writer and my son, and he's also a really big comic book fan. And he selects the comic books that we read for the podcast. I don't know why we're podcast. introducing the fourth one in this series like it's probably like it's going to be somebody's first episode. I mean, every well, episode might be someone's first episode, but it's pretty hard for me to get myself together because this episode just like, this issue like blew my mind because it's called Rising Action, but it's pretty much action from issue one to the end of it. It's like a nonstop fight scene that just keeps going over multiple issues. Yeah, I, I, this is definitely the most action-packed volume of this comic so far. It might be the most action-y comic that we've read for the podcast yet. The, the only thing that I think really competes with is Klaus, but even Klaus is not doesn't really have like any big, big fights until the very end. I think Sandman had a lot of different fights, especially like... Early on when he was fighting the police and everything like that? Uh, I guess, I mean, Sandman has like a couple of what I guess you could call fights. Like, I'm thinking about like, um, his final confrontation with Dr. D, but that's not really like people punching each other. It's, it, th- those are like fights in a very classical comic book, like almost golden age comic style of fight where you mostly see, um, reaction to impressive displays you get what i'm saying like yeah a lot of old school comics fights you don't see like the moment to moment like throwing of punches and dodging and stuff like that you just see like a a panel or a page of a character doing something impressive and then the villain cowering in fear like that's like for years and years that was like every superman fight was like that he goes to fight the bad guy and he just like lifts them over his head or like smushes their gun with his hand and then they go ah! and then he <laughs> flies them into the police station and that's what, like a lot of there a lot of the fights in Sandman are basically just like a metaphysical versions of that. Yeah, but I mean, I guess Sandman has the least amount of fight action. But I was thinking about like Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing's got more than Sandman because Swamp Thing has like a lot of him punching and getting his body exploded and growing a new body. Once they figure out uh, the thing where he can regenerate his body, that book gets a lot more action-y because they can kind of do the Wolverine thing with him where he can just get torn to shreds. I was actually listening to an interview with uh, one of the artists who worked on it, and he said he, Siva said, he said he left because he basically felt the book stopped being a horror book. And I always kind of, I never really thought about it like that like oh Sam, Swamp Thing was a horror book that stopped being a horror book but now that I'm thinking about it it's like it is kind of hard to do keep the horror relevant when your hero like loses the ability to die essentially yeah and that's true and then part of the stuff like when he starts 
having a, a conflict with Batman and then he starts going into outer space. That kind of leaves the realm of horror like really close, like quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of... The, we don't need to relitigate Swamp Thing. But I think the thing with Swamp Thing is the transition in the, the American... Like, the American Gothic story is kind of a uh, microcosm of Swamp Thing. Where it starts as a series of horror stories and then evolves into this, like, cosmic action story where they go to hell and the, the stakes are, li- like, the life and death of the universe. And once they get through that, it never really transitions back into horror. Yeah, I guess that's true. Well, that's not important now, because we're talking about the Wicked Divine. The other thing I was going to say is, this is also, I think, the quickest-paced uh, volume of the bunch. This reads so fast that it almost felt like manga to me more than a traditional, you know, Western English-language comic book. Yeah, I know. I actually read it in one sitting. Because it kind of was just very consecutive and, like you said, fast-paced. It's very graphic, which is funny to say about a comic, but, you know, it's more... The action is driven by the illustrations, the drawings. So, this is, like Nate said, Wicked and the Divine, Volume 4, Rising Action. It's issues 18 to 22, and it came out in the compilation in 2016. Yeah, but it is set in still in 2014. Right. So it's a historical piece. Yeah, it's a period piece. (laughs) So let's get started. You want to start talking about what's going on? Some of this stuff is a little bit confusing, and then it gets cleared up towards the end, which is nice. Yeah, so, I mean, basically the overall story of this issue is uh, the war between the underworld gods and the sky gods. Yeah, well, let's go back really quickly to the end of... Uh, volume three and it looks like Persephone is coming back she books a uh, spot at a club and that's where it ends and then this picks up exactly right after that yeah we uh we get to see that gig um it is like it's represented as, like, alternating panels of the people watching it with, like, black tendrils intruding from the border of the panel. And then plain black panels with just white text that say, Persephone is in hell. Persephone's in hell. Over and over again. Uh, and it blows away all the people who are at the gig who are not... It's like, this is the smallest version we've seen of these, like, god performances. Right. Um, but it still is, like, you know... it's. I think this... Serves one to show us like what how the sort of dark and fatalistic her attitude is currently in contrast to this sort of fangirl Laura that we got in the earlier chapters and I think it's also there to establish that like she is definitely like a god like the other ones on the same level if not more powerful than them. I think it's interesting. Well, first of all, she's got an edgier look. She's d- definitely more. Um hardcore than her look when she was a human and even during her first manifestation as Persephone. But I think it's interesting because it really makes you think that like she's back from the dead. Yeah. I want to talk about her look because um she has a trench coat with a chain mail hood, which is pretty intense. 
that's all I really had to say about that. I was just thought that that was a pretty interesting bit of costuming. But before that, we also got a short sequence to establish um, that Minerva's life kind of sucks. Yeah, you find out that it's just now, like, her 13th birthday. And I think I was really sad where her parents are... She's really worried about her parents, and her parents are always protective of her. And then it turns out that they're protective of her because... They're, they're like stage parents. Yeah. Like, they're talking about, oh, it's your big day. It's your birthday party. And then it turns out that it was, like, a catered event that they sold tickets to. And people were paying an enormous amount of money to come and have a birthday party with Minerva. And then even before that, because they're like, well, you have a big day. She has to do all of these events. Then she gets to go to her birthday party, which is this event that people are paying to be at. Uh, and then this also subtly... Not, I mean, maybe not even subtly, but this also, like, wordlessly establishes that her owl... Who, did they name the owl at any point? I don't know. I was going to talk about that because we find out that the owl is actually, like, an advanced type of computer. Yeah. But uh, this this sequence... Because the sequence is entirely her, like, in bed and her parents come to talk to her while she's laying in bed. Uh, and the owl is perched on her headboard. But we it establishes that it can project holograms, which right. is important for later. And I think what happens later makes sense because you realize that she's kind of feeling like a little bit isolated and she's not actually feeling included with the rest of the Pantheon because they're all adults and they're doing like their own machinations and she's sort of excluded from those things. So when you learn what happens to her next, it makes sense because she starts to like a relationship with the Morrigan and the Morrigan like treats her like an equal and treats her like an adult and talks to her in a way that's not condescending or uses her to like promote their own agenda and she sort of bonds with the Morrigan. Yeah, the end of that sequence is she sneaks off to talk to the Morrigan who is going to reveal some sort of secret to her, which we don't get to see because it cuts to the Persephone performance. Uh, and then we get more stage setting. Odin is building a big, ominous Jack Kirby-looking machine for Anaki. Um, but it definitely has a Woden aesthetic because it's black and it has neon pipes going around it. Yeah, it's but it's... very phallic-looking and just really... It, it, but it also looks like... I mean, it's got... It also sort of looks like Galactus's helmet. It's got, like, a, those... There's the this specific, like, antenna shape where it's, like, it comes out at an angle and then goes straight up. And that's, like, in a bunch of Kirby designs, and it's, like, on Galactus's helmet. Um, Maybe so, it's a nod. I'm sure it is. homage to Kirby. But I was thinking about this. When you when they go, like, back a couple pages, when they start talking to Minerva, and they show the outside of Valhalla, that also has a very phallic-looking yeah. design. Yeah, it's got, like, a big, huge, rounded, central spire. I feel like that's more phallic-looking than the machine that he's building for Anarchy. And they establish, like... it's This sets the stakes immediately uh, that she's going to kill Minerva because uh, Woden asks, you know, that if Minerva is going to be the fourth, and then it shows um, three three of the, like, you know, there's... In the start of every issue, there's this, like, uh, sigil, like, with all the gods' symbols, like, mm-hmm. around in a circle. So we know which symbols represent which gods... And he looks at a screen that has three filled-in symbols, and it's the three gods that we know died. Terra, Lucifer, and Inanna, and then a blank symbol. So it's like, she's going to be the fourth, the fourth god to die. 
so we have this like ticking clock now through this issue that you know if she is not stopped anarchy is going to kill a 13 year old and i think it's uh, well the whole thing is sort of interrupted when woden's uh notifications um explode that there's information about a a new god or a return god and that's when he and Anaki realize that Persephone is still alive but I want to quickly before we get to the fighting I thought it was interesting some of the gods have clear-cut powers and they're manifested in like a physical way yeah and like Persephone has this power I guess to like make people wish they were dead. I don't know what it is. I mean, I think that every god has some sort of power to project their, like, worldview or something onto people, and Jesus has a very negative worldview. Because I don't think that's much different than, like... I don't think that thing that she's doing in the, uh, in the performance is, like, a special power she has. I think it's just her version of what all the gods do. But her emotional energy that she's putting out is manifested in this sort of black tendrils that sort of envelop the people like like thorny like vines and make yeah. them. And I think that's interesting because some of the other gods who have powers don't have physical manifestations to their powers. Like Lucifer, she just clicked and the head exploded. But like Amaratsu, she has this sort of wave that follows her when she's like, you know space traveling or whatever she does how mm-hmm. she ever she moves quickly across the globe well we learn in this we'll get to i mean i guess we can get to it what is pretty firmly set out set stated in this that she travels through sunlight so like i guess you can just go to wherever go from somewhere where the sun is shining to somewhere else where the sun is shining at will and then i guess she has something from in this volume she has some sort of piece of technology that Woden gave her that lets her do the same thing with Starlight, but it like goes weird because that's not like her domain. But that's not important until later. So they find out that Persephone is still alive, and Anaki decides she's going to get Sakmet, Ball, and Amaratsu to go there and confront her. Yeah, uh, and the and the Valkyries as well. Oh, of course, the Valkyries are. But then they get ambushed by Baphomet, who beats the shit out of Ball with, like, a flaming pipe. <laughs> he's really badass in this episode. He, he get, at one uh, point, he's... he does a full-on Wolverine where his shirt gets burned Yeah, off. yeah, there's a lot of shirtless Baphomet in this volume, which is very good. And he says something like, this shirt's not going to survive this he, fight. <laughs> at one point, somebody asks him if he's okay, and it's his jacket. It's even more tragic than his shirt. And he's like, I'm fine, but the jacket's not going to make it. <laughs> Uh, and then Woden attacks the, uh, he uses, like, a, some kind of weird sphere bomb. There's it's a lot like of, a Pokeball, but yeah. a Pantheon version. I mean, this is, like, an almost wordless, entirely wordless sequence, which is, like, an, I think another reason why this volume reads so quickly is there's a, more of those, uh, than there are in other volumes, which were very talking. Uh, which does a good job of selling that, that this is a, sort of more dire like violent situation than they've been in previously but she basically neutralizes it with her like vine powers uh and then Wodner shows up in a fucking like dressed like master chief <laughs> from halo <laughs> with a, a big gun with sackman in like a superhero outfit and 
anarchy in like a like she's got like a black dress with silver piping and then instead of the lace mask that she usually has she has this like spiky metal one that kind of reminds me of like the phantom of the um the phantom of the paradise yeah i mean the the it's like a almost a full page and there's light shining down on them and smoke and it's just it's very dramatic very sci-fi looking yeah and then baphomet goes to rescue the morgan and they're gonna take minerva with them and she convinces him to go rescue her parents who are also in danger we get a big uh fight big like super actiony very we've compared um this book to the x-men a lot this X volume is very x-men we get like a big like brawl in the street with the Valkyries, with laser swords, and Sackmat versus uh, Persephone, and she's like using the like vine tendrils as like whips and flipping around and deflecting laser blasts with it. Yeah, and there's a lot of like really like character specific trash talk that's going on. Mm-hmm. Like Sackmat is like you know leaning into her like cat kind of nature. But she keeps threatening to eat people. Yeah, uh, but. Baphomet really, he kind of does remind me like of a Wolverine in this. I mean, the whole thing with the like mirrored sunglasses and the leather jacket and like his like swinging chain necklace. That's the same thing. It's another thing that happens with Ball too because he also has a big. Yeah, he's got a big necklace with the lightning bolt. So they're always like whipping around and, you know, they're moving so intensely that they're like smashing into the ground and creating like craters and i have a uh i have a theory about ball that i've developed now because of the thing we learned about amaterasu that Woden gives her a thing that modifies her powers and because of another thing we learned in this issue and i'll get to it in this volume and i'll get to it when we cover that thing but i've got a i've got a ball of theory about ball and his necklace but I think it's, I mean, the first issue really clearly sets up that there is a group of the Pantheon that is aware of what Anaki is doing, and there is the group that is not aware of it. And in the beginning, they're trying to convince the other gods of what Anaki is doing, but they're still loyal to her. Yeah, and so the big, uh, and that conflict basically breaks down Along the lines of the underworld gods and the sky gods. With Woden being like the person who definitively knows what Anaki is doing is still loyal to her because she has coerced him into into helping her. Uh, yeah, so she, Laura esca- or Persephone escapes into the underworld. We get more um, cool Baphomet fighting in Valhalla alongside the Morrigan. Uh, Ball shows up. They have another fight. Ball headbutts him and breaks his sunglasses. Uh, which is a lot, a lot of fighting, a lot of yelling. Laura shows up, and they escape, but they're not able to take. They're able to get Minerva, but not her parents. Right. And then Anaki is continually referring to Persephone as the Destroyer. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. What do you think that's about? I don't know. So, like, Persephone... So, for anybody who doesn't know, and we did talk about this a little bit when we covered By Chance of Providence by Becky Cloonan. Uh, well, like, per- Persephone is a Greek goddess. She's 
um, Hades' wife? Yeah. He abducts her to the underworld. She can only leave on a seasonal cycle. Um, she's a goddess of, like, vegetation, but she's, like, connected to the, se- to the seasonal cycle. And so to the cycle of life and death, so she's, like, sort of also a death goddess. Um, she's, like, associated with mis- some mystery cults. Uh, so is her mom, Demeter. And in some instances, she's actually Dionysus's mother, which does not come up in this. Um, and so I think, like, I assume the Destroyer thing... Well, we'll talk about it more when we get to the end of this volume, but I assume the Destroyer thing is tied into that, like, life-death cycle. Like, the, the gods are in a life-and-death cycle, and Persephone is a personification of, like, a life-and-death cycle. Um... So, I don't know. She's some kind of spanner in the works of Anarchy's plan, which is weird because she created her, but I guess she was just trying to, like, get her off the board as quickly as possible, and that went wrong? I don't know. Yeah, because I think what happens after the fight winds down for the first issue, there's a cut scene, and it says one month ago, and we see Lara, who's now Persephone, in bed with Baphomet. Well, as they're leaving... Anarchy, who is a huge asshole, shouts to them, Persephone tasted forbidden fruit in hell, your favorite fruit. Which is like partially a reference to the myth of Persephone, because the thing that traps her in the underworld is she eats the fruit of the underworld, which is the pomegranate. But then it's also obvious they're implying that she uh, and Baphomet slept together, which we see immediately on that next page. Uh, I like his facial expression a lot in this sequence. It's like the same facial expression as when he gets duped into having a relationship with, uh, what was her name, Carrie, before she became the Morgan. Yeah. It was kind of the same thing. He's kind of like this bumbling man who goes from like one relationship to another without any sort of authority or any kind of like consent. He sort of just kind of gets taken in by these women. Yeah. Not taken in like they're they're preying on him, but like taking him in because he's sort of like this wandering sad homeless soul that like yeah and i think it's pretty well established that he does not have great impulse control no uh but yeah and then we also realized because we know from the last issue volume that he was an unwilling participant in the pantheon Mm. even to the point where he didn't even care about the pantheon morgan had convinced anarchy to turn him into want to convert him to the pantheon yeah uh and then the next issue we get like the payoff of the one of the payoffs of the hologram thing where in like a classic like you sneak out and put your pillow under your blanket to make it look you're still sleeping minerva is projecting a hologram of herself still sleeping which has fooled her parents but not anaki i also think this is interesting because now they're also drawing in one of the i mean they start to bring Dionysus into the fight. And Dionysus is one of the sort of neutral gods in the yeah. pantheon. Kind of like... I mean, he's like the only neutral god left at this point, yeah. I think. Because Inanna and Tara are both dead. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, he's at like a party and he, he sort of comes down very hard and decides to go get a Coke. And Baphomet shows up and abducts him to the underworld. 
I like how Anaki, when she finds out that Minerva is projecting a hologram of herself, she's like, that pesky kid! <laughs> yes. She's got a lot of Scooby-Doo villain vibes in this episode. I mean, she... This, like, really ramps up her being a villain and then sort of pulls the emergency break on that, maybe, at the end. We'll talk about it. But yeah, so... Uh, I like that Dionysus and Baphomet are friends, too. Yeah, like, <laughs> it kind of makes sense. And he, so yeah, so he abducts him to the underworld and makes him spill his coke on his shirt. And uh, they basically bring him into the fold and like tell him what's going on. And he he establishes like that like Anarchy is pushing really hard this narrative that Persephone is like an ant. He calls her an antichrist. Right. Uh, we get more of the machine, more of Anarchy uh, bossing. Woden around. And then we also get a sort of understanding of Minerva's owl, and you learn that Anaki is partially controlling it and using it as a spying. Device. Yeah, it was created by Woden, and Woden is like her most important cat's paw. Uh, she goes and but she starts re- manipulating people. She brings up... She, she really pushes on Ball with the like, oh, Baphomet killed... Anana, and now she's standing with that guy, you know, who murdered the dude that you love, like, to try and get Baph- uh, Ball to do her bidding. But I think it's kind of like, it looks like even though they might not believe what Persephone and the Morgan are saying about Anaki, they're starting to lose their sort of, un, like, questioning loyalty to... I mean, even with Woden, you see that. At one point he's questioning, is it right to put minerva into this machine that he built yeah uh what happens i mean she she's really like projecting everything that she's done onto persephone she says that she is to baphomet as far as is to ash she is the destroyer but she really i mean she's pretty much blaming everything on baphomet and i I mean we kind of know at this point that he didn't do those things but i guess ball and amaratsu and well sacrament really doesn't care who does what she'll fight anyone or anything yeah and we get another sequence in the underworld where everyone's talking and Minerva expresses that thing that you were saying where like they're starting to see all the sort of little contradictions and holes in Anaki's story that's making them doubt her or at least making her doubt her and then that is interrupted by the owl arriving which then explodes in the lightning revealing Ball in uh, one of his better outfits I think of the series so far. He's got like a purple suit with a black shirt, but the lapels have like a lightning, gold lightning pattern on it, and he's wearing sunglasses because he got, you know, smacked in the face a whole bunch in his fight with Baphomet earlier. And there's all like his purple laser beams all over the place. Yeah, he like, and there's like a really cool panel where he's pulling down the sunglasses and lightning shooting out of his eyes, and he says round two. And then they're like, the fight starts and they're framed like it's about to be a dance number. Because he's got Amaterasu and Sakmet behind him and they're both in spotlights. Yeah. <laughs> and like the un- the underworld has been portrayed, or the underground, I can't forget. They call it the underground. The underground has been portrayed in this comic as like, it's almost like a black box theater. Like it's just black with no background. And then the characters standing in like low light inside of the, the dark void like that's what the underground looks like and this fight is happening there 
Uh, and then more, there's more fighting. There's lots of fighting in this issue. Uh, Ball goes to grab Minerva. Uh, the Morrigan turns into a crow person with like a bird face and unleashes like a bunch of ravens. Uh, it's really hard to see what's going on in this. Yeah, because the raven sort of, it's like a full panel and there's like, yeah, there's like, well, because there's, it's almost like a collage with like multiple images of Ball being attacked by the Ravens. Uh, it's pretty cool. For like Ball, who like seems to fight he everybody, he's beat always up a get, lot. yeah. <laughs> well, he's got the problem of being the tough guy character. That's like an all of fiction, especially, specifically like when it's like an ensemble cast in like an action. Or genre series like this, the worst last person you want to be is the tough guy, because the tough guy always gets beat up to show how tough everyone else is. Like if you watch Star Trek, Worf, the Klingon, uh, he's supposed to be a powerful and noble warrior, but he almost always gets his ass kicked because it's the the easiest way to show that the thing they're fighting is a big deal that is dangerous. <laughs> and like he's also it's also like if you play D, right like if you're the guy who runs into the fight first because you're the biggest toughest guy you always get your shit rocked because you're always standing on the front line which is what keeps happening to ball i believe he keeps running up to people to fight them and then they hit him which like what do you expect is gonna happen but not only that like sacrament like tore tears into Dionysus. yeah she kicks his ass <laughs> he's like i'm not a fighter i'm not even a lover i'm a dancer and she says, weak, I'm a lover and a fighter, and punches him in the head and knocks him out with one punch. And then has a karate fight, like a fucking, like, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon fight with uh, Baphomet, where she, like, jumps onto his flaming pipe and kicks him in the face. <laughs> and then finally she ends up fighting with Persephone, and then Amaterasu grabs Minerva and pieces out. And then the fight basically peters out from there. Well, because I think the whole point of the fight is to get Minerva back. Yeah. So, mission accomplished right there. Baphomet tries to uh, tell Ball that he didn't kill Inanna. And then Anarchy did. And Ball... uh, He says that's exactly what she said you'd say. Yeah. She's like a step ahead of them at every turn. Well, I think... I think Ball is suffering from, like, this escalation, you know, escalation of commitment, where he's starting to see that things aren't what they seem, but he's so invested in this history that was created for him to believe that he doesn't want to believe that there could be another reason why this is happening. Yeah. And then, uh... I like how there's a little panel of him, and he has, like, lightning bolts just, like, coming out of his face. That's when he, she, he says, that's exactly what you she said you'd say. Yeah, and he's completely tore up at this point. Like, his shirt is, like, entirely in tatters, and he's covered in, like, claw marks from the ravens. Like, he just gets increasingly, like, hamburgerized <laughs> throughout this story. But his shirt being ripped off does not become a plot point, like it does with uh, Baphomet. No. Uh, but then Baphomet has to come. So we see, like, he has to calm the Morrigan down. Yeah, now, because she's, she's like, like a torrent of ravenous birds. Well, yeah, because I think she's upset about... Well, she's mad about what's happening, but then she's also upset about Minerva, because I think 
they've really bonded at the time that she was in the cage. Yeah. Uh, and then the owl is, like, dead, but it's not actually dead. And what is the... I can't remember. Babbitt is the red-haired, angry aspect of the Morrigan. Is the one that summons the bird swarm. And then the Morrigan is the black-haired, reasonable one. What is the name of the bald one? I don't know, but she's sort of like, like the more mystical one. She's like the most innocent, too. Yeah, but she does the same trick she did on the police officer and brings the mechanical owl back to life, which shows them a video of uh, Anarchy telling Woden, like, I'm going to ritualistically murder Minerva. So if you didn't think that Woden was a shit, then yeah, you really know it now. But he's very, he's very good in this one. Later on, we get a lot of his like internal monologue during the big final fight, and it's very good. Uh, so yeah, so now they've got their proof. Now they know exactly what's up. Um, they got Minerva's ale. Yeah. And so they decide they're going to do whatever is necessary to get her back. And Yeah, that is what... Anarchy. That's what Persephone says. And I think the thing that's going on here is her, I think... She and Anaki are some sort of reflections of each other. They have very similar attitudes. Like, she says whatever's necessary. And as we see later on, that's basically Anaki's attitude, too. And she's, like, seems just as cool with murder as we'll see later on as Anaki is. And I think this is the first inkling we get that, like, part of what's going on here is that there are kind of two sides of the same coin. Well, and I think it's pretty, it was pretty clear from even when she was Lara and she was friends with Lucifer that she's very morally ambiguous. Yeah, she's not Even like though a... she tries to give this persona as being a good girl and, you know, just being like a fan or whatever. I think she was always, from some point of view, trying to integrate herself into the pantheon. Mm-hmm. And whether that was like subliminal because she knew that she belonged there or that she wanted to be there. Or maybe she didn't know she belonged there. Maybe she's is the destroyer. And maybe the drive to... to Maybe what she interpreted in her mind as this obsessive fandom was actually her subconscious trying to Trojan horse her way into the pantheon to destroy it. Well, that could be. Because, I mean, the whole time that she was... Even when she was just a fan, she was manipulating people sneaking into places and when she was trying to solve the murder of lucifer she was like talking to all these shady people like she really feels comfortable like making sort of you know moral choices like she really doesn't seem to be like emotionally upset about you know her role if she is the destroyer she seems fine with it yeah. There doesn't seem to be any internal conflict with the way that she has evolved her emotional choice making. Uh yeah, also that panel where she says like we're we're gonna do whatever's necessary. Uh she her eyes are black with glowing skulls in them. Yes. Uh yeah, and so the next issue Well no, the next issue is not the start of is it the start of the big we'll get to it. The next issue, we bring Cassandra back into the plot, who has not been around for the last couple issues, like, at all. And I think Cassandra is sort of, if Persephone is the sort of opposite side of Anarchy, then the neutralizing agent for Persephone is Cassandra or the Nord. 
they seem to have, even if they don't explicitly have a relationship, they seem to have some kind of connection. Well, I mean, they're friends. Not friends. But they were, like, I guess they are friends. I mean, there is that whole thing where she's like, I'm happy for you when she becomes Urger. So, like, I guess they they are, they, before any of the God stuff, they are sort of, they were working together and at some point, when they weren't looking, became friends. Uh, yeah, but she, Persephone calls Urger, or Laura calls Cassandra to the, the ruins of her house. Uh, to try and, to reach out to her in some way. And she's, well, I mean, she uh, tentacleizes her and shows her the, uh, like, a big flashback explaining everything. So what we learn from this sequence is uh, what looked like Baphomet killing Inanna by blowing up the church was just him blowing up the church, and they were both alive. Um, and, you know, Inanna continues his speech that he was giving Baphomet of, like, you know, look, you, you kill me, you get to be alive longer, it's not going to make you any happier. I, w- I was happy, so, like, it's fine. I can face death without regret. And then uh, he reveals that Anarchy told him about it, too, that, like, gave him a, basically the same speech she gave Baphomet about, like, oh, you know, the um, the Prometheus Gambit works if a god does it. And Baph- they put it together, or at least Baphomet does, and then explains to Inanna that, like... She's manipulating them. She wanted him to go kill Anana. They figure out what's going on, and uh, he has Anana. Anana does like some like star divination thing, and realizes there's a new god near Laura's house. And they go there, and they see Ananki's attempted murder of Persephone, and intervene, which then causes her to kill Anana. Baphomet and Persephone escape. Laura's parents come out, and Ananki sets the house on fire. So it kind of, like, fits her timeline, because the church and the death of Anana happen really close together. So she's able to push this, like... Yeah. Nobody besides Baphomet and Persephone, who are now on the run and being branded as enemies, see Anana after the church explosion. And Ananki never tells the other... People, what happened to Persephone? So, did it even know that she exists? I don't think they know she exists until she runs in and says the destroyer has returned in the beginning of this volume. That makes sense because Woden didn't seem to know who the yeah, new god was. He saw that alert, but he didn't. Yeah, he didn't know who it was or what it was going on. So then we realized that Persephone technically didn't rise back from the dead. No, she, she just... was never dead, but she was living in the underground for months. Yeah, she which does. is like one season, which I guess fits the myth. Though. Well, well <laughs> that gets called out later, <laughs> and it's one of the funnier parts of this volume. Yeah, so we get this sequence that is titled "Persephone in Hell, August to, Subse- to September," where she lies in the underworld in grieving while Baphomet comes and goes. Uh, this sequence overlaps with uh, them capturing the Morrigan, and then Terra dying, and then. Um, he try, you know, he tries to comfort her. She's like, I thought you were good, bad company. And he's like, yeah, I said that. I lied. I lie. I'm a man. I lie. Being a man means lying. I love the scene where Anana and Baphomet are, like, going to sweep in the save Persephone. And they're, like, all 
purple and aqua sparkles. Yes. Again, and they're very, like best friends. Very X-Men. Like it does feel like, oh, it's like Wolverine and Gambit. <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, I mean, he even really has this sort of like Gambit look with his like later on the top blonde Well, he's hair. also got like a, like a, a, he's wearing like a, like a spandex jumpsuit, which implies that he does actually fully have the Gambit thing going on where he's wearing like a superhero jumpsuit under a trench coat. <laughs> now his coat's gone. And so he's just got in the suit, and then he gets exploded, which is very sad. Uh, and then we get another nested flashback, where we get to see Baphomet's awakening, and we learn the very important detail uh, that he is not Baphomet, because <laughs> Baphomet doesn't exist. And he is, in fact, Nurgle, and which <laughs> makes him really mad <laughs> to learn Uh and, yeah, I, don't, I didn't really understand okay, so, this part. So she, he's like, yeah, well, Persephone doesn't understand it either. And she's like, why were you upset that you were Nurgle? Or Nurgal? I don't know how you're supposed to say it. I always said it was, I always pronounced it as Nurgle. Uh, be, but he says like, you know, imagine if you were revealed to be Thor and you had to deal with everybody being like, you don't look like the Thor from the movies or the comics and your hair's not perfectly blonde or whatever. It's like that, but for a higher frequency of nerd. So I have three ideas of what he might be referencing, and they could be that he's referencing all of them. So one is... Um, now, I could be wrong about this because I've never really played Warhammer. I only have a peripheral understanding of it. But my understanding is that... And this is plausible because we know that he and Marion were t- t- you know, t- like tabletop nerds, and we see them painting miniatures... But in the Warhammer setting, both the fantasy and sci-fi versions, they have, like, these chaos gods that are, like, a core tenet of that setting, and one of them is Nurgle. Um, And then the other option is there's, like, a metal band called Behemoth, and their lead singer calls himself Nurgle. And then the third option, which is the one that I thought of immediately and is the one that I associate with it, is uh, Hellblazer. Like, John Constantine's archenemy is Nurgle. I thought it was interesting when they show his transformation and he's falling through these like tunnel of all anarchy faces. His the outline is really like a lion. Yeah, he he sort of catches on fire with like a lion skull motif and then when he uh arises, you know, fully a god, he's sitting on a throne of skulls with a lion skull on top and he's got like metal lion skull like shin pads or greaves or whatever yeah that's really like a death metal kind of like thing uh and his necklace is 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 it the same necklace no i think he's removed all of the lion stuff from his regalia to hide the fact that he's not nurgle to hide the fact that he is nurgle and not baphomet who's associated with a goat uh but i like the way he's just like nurgle are you taking the piss Oh, you're taking a piss. <laughs> That's how I imagine he said it. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that would make sense because they are British. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, he doesn't want to live up to. Nurgle's a big deal. Like, Baphomet is, like, the the god that became a demon that your grandma knows about. So, I guess there's less pressure in being Baphomet than in being Nurgle. Uh, but it makes another interesting thing, though, right? So, we've talk- I've talked a lot about how there is this dichotomy between the sky gods and the underworld gods, right? The celestial and chthonic deities. Nurgle is... Well, so most people, if you know about Nurgle, 
Also, uh, he's a character in Billy and Mandy. <laughs> that's that's where I first heard the name, uh, but I associate it more with Constantine. Uh, but you know, Nurgle was one of those like you know, Mesopotam- I think a Mesopotamian gods that was co opted by Christianity and incorporated into demonology as like a, a demon. Uh, but Nurgle, I could be wrong about this. I, I, I like, but I'm pretty sure Nurgle was originally, a, like, a sun god. I think, like, the setting sun or something, maybe, like that. And then, over time, evolved into being an underworld god. So, he was both. In the same way that Lucifer is, like, a figure associated with both this the sky and the underworld. So, so is Nurgle. So, he pretty much came, evolved into Nurgle, and then said, Ah, oh, no, call me Baphomet. And yeah. then just everyone just was like, "That's cool, you're Baphomet." Well, they none of them were there for this. None of them know that don't none of them know that he's Nurgle. So he just convinced Anaki to let him be Nurgle. To let him be Baphomet. Baphomet. I'm sorry. I mean, I guess he just maybe, or he just started saying he was, and she never called him out for it. That would make sense if the Morgan picked who she wanted him to be. She would pick a god that was portrayed in one of her favorite things, tabletop games. Oh, maybe. I didn't even think about that, but that's possible. But yeah, so we learn... So there is a payoff to the thing that I brought up in the first volume about Baphomet being this artificial creation. So we find out that he... So, okay, so here's my theory. So there's that big deal that's made when they're trying to solve um, the murder of... Is it when they're trying to solve the murder of Lucifer or is it when they're trying to solve the murder of the judge? I can't remember. But there's that part where they're like, where Cassandra lists all the gods that could have done the murder. And she's, no, it is, it is when they're trying to figure out the murder of Lucifer. And she's like, well, Baal could be a suspect, but it really depends on if he's Baal Hadad or Baal Haman. Right? And one's like a fire god and one's like a lightning god. But he, we we're pretty sure that he's the lightning god. Yeah, wears- but have we ever seen him use his lightning powers without his lightning necklace? That's true. So that could be, like you said, it could be an enhancement with an object. Because we find out that, like, um, Toronto can only use her powers on Starlight when she's got her device from Woden. We know that Woden made the necklace because we see him make it and give it to Ball. So is it, it's, so I'm, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know why, like, thematically or character-wise it would be the case. But I definitely think this opens up the possibility that he's not the god that he has presented himself as being. Well, that would be interesting because you can be a god. You can choose which god you want to present as. or But you can't choose not to be a god. Yeah. Which is kind of restrictive. So back to the story. So after all of this goes through and Cassandra it gets a sort of back story of what's going on. From Persephone, she's kind of like dumbstruck. Yeah, and then she tries to. She's like, "This is crazy. You can't. You can't rush off. We should go to the authorities." I guess that's like basically her point. It's like, don't. She's trying to argue like, don't take justice in your own hands and go off half cock because you're gonna get killed. Uh, and Persephone's like, "Are you can come and help us, or you cannot come and help us?" And she goes to stop her from leaving, and it turns out that she's a hologram being projected by the. Uh, by the elf. Which just means that she really didn't trust Cassandra. Yeah, it's well, see, that's what I'm saying. Like, she is not dissimilar to Anaki. Because my interpretation of this scene was, like, 
she was trying to play two angles at once. One was, this might recruit Cassandra to help us. If it doesn't, it at the very least distracts her if she's not going to be on our side. Right. Uh, which is like a pretty dirty move to do on your friend. But it's not dissimilar to the kinds of machinations that Anaki was pulling on the gods before. Well, I don't really get the vibe from Cassandra or even as the Nords that they're really aligned with one side. No. And they're not neutral like uh, Anana was. Kind of, she's kind of like a meddler on both sides. Yeah, oh, we also didn't talk about what might be the most important thing that happens in this sequence, or in this issue even, which is uh, Persephone uses like her, she uses the black tendrils. Like she uses like her god influence powers, the same thing she did, this is, excuse me, the same thing she did in her performance on Cassandra. And Cassandra's like, you know that doesn't work on me. Because it hadn't. That was like her whole deal was that like that didn't work on her and it works on her. Yeah, but what does that mean? I don't know. Is it because they're friends? Is it because she's something else outside of the Pantheon? Or because she's more powerful? Is Cassandra just more open to that stuff working on her now that she is a god? I don't know. Could be anything. If we go with the art metaphor, it could be that like... It's her friend's art that her friend's art, and specifically a, a very personal version of it, that's moving her in a way that stuff created by other people that might be less personal isn't. It could be that like she's making art now, and so she has like is more open to being moved by it because she understands how it works. Or it could be that this is something entirely different that she's never experienced before. This could be like she's the critic in Ratatouille. <laughs> it could be anything, but. uh but so, yeah. So then that's the end of that issue. And then the next issue is kind of like the craziest issue in my mind. Uh, so we get like a full-on assault on Valhalla. Uh, initially led... Oh, by... Yeah, so it's a... I'm looking at the page right now. It is a different necklace. He's wearing a goat head necklace and not the lion head necklace. Right, because that's the Baphomet symbol. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. He, The only thing he really has that he... Like the that might be a clue to his true nature is his belt buckle still kind of liony, but it's more stylized than the other lion imagery that was on his original outfit. So maybe that's why he kept it. Right. Uh, but yeah, so they show up to assault Valhalla uh, basically at the same time that Anaki is pushing Wood to start up the machine and do the ritual to kill uh, Minerva. We get uh, we also get like one panel. They're not called out, but. Uh, the uh, the camera the documentary crew is still there. Yes, <laughs> they're that, they're kind of like baffled. That's kind of like the com, com, the comedic relief in the middle of the thing. They're kind of like, what just happened, and why are we still here? Yeah, and so and I like when Dionysus shows up and he has like these two lightning sticks that he uses to fight with. They're glow sticks. They're glow sticks because he's a raver. He says, "I'm going to fight." So the uh, Sacrament and Ball go out to me. The uh, invaders, and then uh, Dionysus has weaponized his rave, and a bunch of glowing ravers leap over the walls of Valhalla to join in the fight, and so does he. And then when they're fighting, he's like, "I'm going to do this my own way," and he summons glow sticks to fight with. Uh, the Valkyries show up with their laser swords. Yeah, uh, they're kind of like weaponize themselves they're they're they have even more neon and black graphical body armor they have bigger guns and they're sort of more they're almost like mind controlled at this point 
Well, they're like talking in unison. They say stop the destroyer. And it's like each one has one of the word balloons. So they're like some kind of hive mind or something now. And we get like a big fight. Lots of light and explosions. Dionysus does some cool stuff. Uh, and Ball then we... is like just covered in like purple lightning bolts. that are just shooting everywhere. But so Baphomet, this is important though. Because like Baphomet's trying to talk to him while they're fighting. And he says, before he died, Anana told me he loved you and then he never meant to hurt you. And that makes Ball falter. Which is important for later. Uh, we cut back into Valhalla. Anaki shows up. Uh, Minerva wakes up and tries to get her parents and Amaterasu to leave. And Anaki just fucking obliterates her parents. Yes, right in front of her. That's like, kind of sad. Yeah, in front of her and Amaterasu. And she goes to kill Amaterasu who then teleports away, uh, which is a little bit of a shit move, because she does leave Minerva there. Uh, I can't tell if she does it spontaneously, or if, like, somehow she's projected out? No, I think it's her, she talks about it later. That's her using the starlight thing. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so, so then she just leaves Minerva and the crew there, and they're kind of like, <laughs> How the fuck, fuck are we still alive? <laughs> well, they're standing near next to the door, so Anaki busts in and clo- opens the door, which hides them, and then she kills Minerva's parents, and all this stuff happens, and then she goes to leave, and he just like the cuts to them behind the door, <laughs> and they're like, uh... Somebody needed to document that. Yeah, more fighting. Uh, so the way that Amaterasu leaves is she basically turns into a red laser, which distracts Sackman because <laughs> yes. she's a cat. This is very good. Which allows uh, Baphomet to jump into Valhalla. He faces off against uh, Anaki to save Minerva. He manages to destroy Anaki's hand, which like... I guess it's important because you know, that's where her power... Her well, yeah, is. and it's like, you know, like, I don't know, it's like a red right hand thing. It's also like... Because he has I, the flaming sword. Yeah. And he, like, destroys her hand with it. Yeah. The morally dubious uh, mentors and authority figures love having their hands get withered. Uh, <clears throat> you know what I'm talking about. She's the fully canceled, so we don't need to reference that work any further. <laughs> um, but that does happen, and then she... Yeah, she blasts him out of Valhalla and into the sky. Uh, and this is when sort of Woden has like a conscience crisis where he kind of does, he likes Minerva. And we know this because yeah. he created the owl for her and he protected her and she protected him. Yeah, she, yeah. During the incident where he was nearly assassinated. So he kind of has this sort of guilt about sacrificing her into this machine, which we never really learn in this volume what it's actually for. Yeah, and she, he, it's like, it's like, hey, can we maybe not do this? Uh, and Anaki is like, there's there's no retreat. I killed Minerva's parents and the renegades have a confession. And it's like, did she engineer this all to make the situation so dire that there would be no walking back? Like, did she purposefully escalate everything did she let them get the confession and go out of her way to kill minerva's parents to create a situation that woden couldn't walk back from i think she might have been manipulating this situation but i don't think that she thought that it would get this extreme no i don't think i think that's definitely the case 
Uh, and so Woden is like, what? Uh, and so, yeah, but she says, I taped a, quote, accidental confession. I suspect they were smart enough to find it. I suspect they were not smart enough to realize it was a lure. So, like, she definitely set this yeah. all up. Yeah, but I don't think she, like, Persephone, like, destroying Valhalla or poor Baphomet's jacket being sacrificed on the battlefield were things that she thought were going to happen. I also like that right when his jacket gets, like, ripped off, Dionysus, like, rolls in with his, like, cuff jeans and his, like, ghostly, ghost, what are they called, glow stick weaponry, yeah. and he kind of, like, floats down from the sky. Dionysus just dresses like me. <laughs> Uh, I'm also bald and have cuff jeans and Converse. <laughs> um, <laughs> and a t-shirt. Uh, but yeah, so oh, this is also like where Woden's faith breaks. Because he's like, she says, you lo- you've lost it. Yeah, and then we get... <laughs> uh, yeah, Persephone's like, Baphomet, are you okay? And he goes, I, I, I don't think this jacket is going to make it. <laughs> and he takes off his tattered jacket. <laughs> And then he's just shirtless throughout the rest of the issue. But he's totally ripped. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's totally jacked. Um, <laughs> Which is very funny. And he's got that sort of like Wolverine, Elvis kind of like. Yeah, I compared him to Danzig. When he first showed Danzig, up, I said Danzig, Danzig shows up. But it's like all, a lot of that going on. Um, yeah. And so then Woden reveals. So that person, quote unquote, that he was talking to at the end of the previous volume or at least at the end of his focal issue in the previous volume, is revealed to be this, like, Valkyrie robot he made, which is able to control the other Valkyries and have them project these, like, like Green Lantern constructs that form together Voltron-style into a giant Valkyrie mech with a huge sword. It also have very high heels and very tight outfit on. Yeah, and uh, Baphomet says uh, someone's fetishes just got way out of control. <laughs> Uh, and then we get, yes, like, he literally creates a giant pink, pink glowing, yeah, overly sexualized... Yeah, like a heavy metal cover, <laughs> like the magazine, like robot woman. Um, I mean, it gets... Well, Cassandra calls it out when she says it, but it gets even more Of course, more she's, because so. she's got like her feminist radars on like high alert yeah. for any kind of shenanigans like that. She's already on like Woden's like, shit list. And then the last page of this issue is Minerva about to be fed into this machine, which is now, like, unfolded into this black and red. It's like a thing that, like, a cartoon supervillain would put somebody in. It's, like, got, like, a conveyor belt with, like, literally, like, buzzsaws and fire. Like, something that <laughs> that Dudley Do-Right would get strapped to. But then Anaki also has, like, a crystal dagger. Yeah, which has, like, some sort of runes or something engraved on it that you can't really make out. And she says... It never ends. And then that's the end of the issue. And we start the last issue of this volume, uh, which opens with Amaterasu getting Cassandra and being like, you got to come help because you're the grown-up. Right. I was just going to say, like, they need, a, they need a boss to get in there. Yeah. I mean, she literally says, well, why did you come to me? And she says, because you're the grown-up. And then she responds, it's worse than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> and they uh, show up, and we got a full-page spread of, like... Persephone controlling like a big monster man out of root tentacles fighting the Valkyrie mech and Cassandra says you know it depresses me to know that someone somewhere is wanking over this because <laughs> it's literally like a big 
anime robot woman fighting a tentacle monster. A, se- a sexy anime robot. And she woman. also she's shooting missiles out of her, her her breastplate has unfolded, and she's shooting missiles out of her boobs. I guess uh, that's not as sexist as like just shooting the missiles out of her boobs. She is doing that. Yeah, but I mean, at least it's a breastplate. Well, no, oh, the, no, no, no. The yes. breastplate is unfolded, and she is shooting yeah. okay. missiles out of her boobs. Uh, yeah, and then this is also where we get, like, a real shot of the fact that it's wearing high heels and, like, a bikini, essentially. Uh, well, I guess it's because that's what Woden would want a robot to look like. Yeah, well, really hammering home that he's a fucking creep. But it's definitely, like, a hot pink robot that he has created. Yeah. Yeah, and this is where we start getting his internal monologue. And so he basically concocts this plan to give himself plausible deniability. Where he's going to do like a fake supervillain speech to convince Dionysus to attack the smaller mech. His Valkyrie, I think he calls it a golem, uh, which will destroy that and then he'll get knocked out. And then it, it, it won't matter who wins the fight. Because to Anoki it'll look like he tried to help and just failed. And she already thinks he's an idiot. And if the other people win, he won't have stopped them from winning. And he can just reveal... What he did to them or something, I guess. Yeah, he's like, if Cassandra plays both sides because she wants to create some type of peace, he plays both sides because he wants to protect himself. Yeah, he's a coward. Yeah. Uh, he says, well, now I'll lie down for a while. I've done what I can. You better not fuck this up. <laughs> <laughs> and he just plays dead for the rest of the fight. Uh, that's what he's talking about. It's great. He sucks, but I really like the specific way in which he sucks. He's like an indoor cat. He does not want to go outside and fight in the no. battle. He wants to stay inside. Yeah. But meanwhile, he doesn't do really anything to protect or help Minerva, who's now tied like Dudley Do-Right style to this conveyor belt that's going to go into the mouth of this but machine that we don't really know what, the, what in it a, does. In a way, right, he is the first person we've ever seen in this series actually have faith in a god. He's having faith that the rest of the Pantheon will save Minerva and stop Anarchy. So, is he maybe, perhaps, the bravest character? No. No, he's not. But I think that's interesting. That it is from this coward that we see the first genuine act of faith in a story about gods and religion. Uh, Yeah, uh, Cassandra shows up. She puts the kibosh on the whole fight. Sackman is not going to stop fighting. We get a brief, like, vision of, like, how she's about to beat everyone up when Ball punches her in the back of the head and knocks her out and reveals that he's in. Because Cassandra's pitch is, like, let's us all go together. If Minerva is, if Anaki is trying to kill Minerva, we'll stop her. If she's not, then we'll just deal with that later. But right now we should maybe go determine that a child isn't getting murdered. (laughs) Which is, like, pretty reasonable. Uh, so that's cool. They go in. Turns out a child is, uh, getting murdered. Uh, Ball and Baphomet team up to fight Anarchy. It's great. Well, yeah, because it's like arch enemies and now they're working on the same side. Yeah. But the whole time that they're fighting, Ball's suit remains intact and perfect. Yeah, but not, uh, Baphomet's jacket. Uh, yeah, and then, 
There's a pretty funny sequence where a bathroom that says, I checked the calendar, today is a murder a kid day. <laughs> I'd have remembered too, murder a kid day is my favorite holiday. <laughs> um, uh, and then eventually... But Baphomet really doesn't murder anyone. No, he's not. He's like the actually secretly the the like most morally pure character in the book. Uh, yeah. So Laura shows up, or Persephone shows up, and entangles Anarchy in her uh, tentacles, and then she gives her big speech, which I really liked. Anybody. And by anybody, I mean the four people who have, who have played in my D&D campaigns. No, I like to give the villain a nice uh, speech where they explain how actually uh, they're right and the heroes are just uh, petty brutes who are messing up their very good plan. (laughs) And that's what she explains. She's like, there's some kind of darkness. So, So we talked about it before. There's that whole sequence where she gives the interview to Cassandra in volume two. Mm-hmm. And she's like, yeah, like we struggle against the darkness. And we were like, is that metaphorical? Is there that literal? Like, is there an actual like force of darkness that's going to show up and they have to fight? And this seems to like it reveals like, yeah, like it, it is literal or at least it is literal in and metaphorical, you know? Like, so how awful must this force of darkness be where all of the awful things that Anaki did are better than the darkness showing up? Yeah. Well, she's like, this is necessary for some reason. This is going to help fight the darkness. And the reason she had to be so manipulative and underhanded is because, you know, the gods are petty and vulgar and they won't, they'll, they won't work towards the greater good. So she has to manipulate them into doing it and literally murder them. And everybody has this discussion where they're like, you know, do we kill her or do we not kill her? And they all seem to, except for Persephone, come down on the side of, like, uh, you know, let's not kill her. I like how the insult that she gives them is, okay, Nick, Batcave. When, like, Minerva's being, like, pushed into the machine. No, he's talking to, Ball is talking to Baphomet. Yeah, I know, but that's, like, the insult. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so, Laura wants to kill Anarchy. Uh, Anarchy is like, she's the destroyer. Persephone's always destroyer. Uh, just like, you killed her family. And then she's like, Erder, think, what does Persephone mean? And she's like, she who destroys. Uh, but then Ball gives her this speech of like, you know, the, the like, don't kill people speech, you know? It's a bit killing is a big deal. None of the people who you're event, trying to avenge would actually want you to kill, except for maybe Lucifer. But you're better than her. And he's like, "Don't do this." And sh- and then they're like, "Okay, cool. We're gonna go put her in the cage that they had Morgan in, and we're gonna figure out what's up." And then uh, he he gives the, the whole speech, and he's like, "Oh, you know, Anana wouldn't want you to kill her, and your parents wouldn't want you to kill her." And she goes, "What about Jenny?" And she's like, "My sister. She was asleep when the house went up." And then she clicks her fingers and eviscerates Anaki, and she's like, who knows what Jenny what Jenny wanted? We'll never know. But meanwhile, before this happens, she has her restrained in the tendril. Yeah, she executes her. Yeah, so she's really, like, she's neutralized at that point, and Minerva is safe. But she doesn't want to listen to reason. I mean, it seems like outside of the click, like, explosion and projection of force, Anaki doesn't really have much power. Uh... 
But yeah, so they, they have her neutralized and she executes her and then goes to walk off and they all like agree, you know, we're gonna say this was self-defense to protect Laura from going to jail. But here's something that gets me. They have this huge battle in very public sites and also at Valhalla. And they're like shooting and killing each other and shooting and killing a lot of people. Well, I don't and think anyone's they're... actually dying in that sequence. But then they're kind of like, oh, we got to cover up this one murder. Yeah, well, I think that now it becomes real. Before it was like just a big spectacle, but nobody was dying. Now someone has died. And they haven't just died. They've been executed. And she's done to Anarchy essentially what she's done to all the other gods. To just kill them. To unilaterally decide to kill them. Uh, because she thinks that that's right and that's what needs to be done in this moment without any care to what other people think or what that person wants or whether or not it's right to kill anyone. Um, Woden shows up and he's like, there is no other choice. It's a necessity. Now, where have I heard that before? And so he is like specifically calling out that she is acting like Anaki. And then Amaterasu asks, oh, fuck, oh, God. She says, oh, fuck, oh, God, oh, fuck, oh, God. What do we do now? And Persephone says, duh, whatever we want. And when she says that, she's like in front of the machine with blood-soaked tendrils around her. And like one of the tendrils is holding Anarchy's severed arm and she's covered in blood. And it is a very sinister image. And I think is raising the question of like, is you know, did you charge? just let the worst, the worst villain kill the other villain? And now the even worse villain is in charge. <sighs> Who's to say? I don't know. I'm excited to see where what happens in the next volume. This, you know, it's like volume two. I said about volume two, like this feels like final act shit, and we're only halfway through the story, if that. Yeah, but I guess like the problem of what Anaki was working to prevent is still like hanging over their heads. Yeah, so we've had a lot of questions answered, for, I guess, for the most part. Like we, but yeah, we still need to know. We still don't really fundamentally understand what the pantheon is exactly what their purpose is i guess they're supposed to fight the darkness but we don't know what the darkness is or really what's at stake though we do kind of know right she says like if they hadn't failed in struggles against the darkness before humanity would have gotten to mar gotten to mars before ancient rome or whatever or ancient greece or something like that so i mean it's gonna i i think what's at stake is like if the darkness shows up and gets what it wants it creates a dark age yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, yeah, Wait, is she the darkness that I don't Anarchy know? Was trying, well, because then she all she need unless she can't stop herself from manifesting the gods, because literally all she had to do was not create Persephone. Yeah, well, that's like the question is like is I that I have now is like is the darkness like a separate entity or is the darkness the underworld gods? And if it is the underworld gods, then why even manifest them? So I think it does have to be. Something separate, but maybe Persephone's tied to it. I don't know. But it would be interesting because I guess at this point we don't really know other than the basic flashback to the 1920s pantheon. We don't really know what the other gods were. And we're just assuming that the gods that have been manifested have come back before. Yeah, but we don't know. Yeah. And it's also like there is the thing, the hanging thread that hasn't been referenced since Volume 2... Which is the Lost Pantheons. Yeah, and I think it's pretty clear from the 1920s flashback. When they show the table and they have the skulls there, there are three skulls there. 
So if Anki tried to do what she was doing now back in the 1920s and didn't succeed... I think that that flashback is showing her succeeding. Well, of keeping of using the god's sacrifice to keep the darkness at bay? Yeah, well, she has three, and then presumably she kills a fourth god in that at the end of that sequence. Because she's trying to get her... She specifically says, like, her or Woden or someone specifically uses the term, like, get your count up to four. Oh, okay. And we know that, like, one, two, three, four, like, the counting to four is important. That has something to do with invoking power. So now, whatever Anagi had been doing for thousands of years to keep the darkness at bay has failed. Yeah. And now they have these sort of self-involved, very sort of contentious group of gods now who are left without any guidance and don't know what the darkness is that they have to protect the world from. Yes. Yeah. So that's kind of crazy. So I can see why, even though this feels like every issue feels like a finishing Mm. uh, episode or volume, there's always a big question that's left that can be answered in the next volume. Yeah, yeah. So So yeah, I mean, that's it. Do we have anything else to say about this volume? I liked it. It was very graphic. Like you said, there was not a lot of text. It was mostly like image-driven, which I think really helped with the action. And... I think it really sort of solidified the plot, which mm-hmm. was good. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, this is... I said it felt like Final Act stuff, but this is a good, like... You know, the the turning point of your story at the middle should be something like this. That, that is big and wild and is a point that you can't walk back from. You know? Like, that's... I remember reading in, like, books and stuff about writing, you know, that the idea that, like, every act should end with a character making an irreversible decision... And that definitely is what happens at the end of this. I mean, Laura slash Persephone chooses to kill the character in the setting that has the most knowledge about the setting. Even if they are, they were a a villain, you know. uh, But was she a villain? I don't know. Question mark. But also going back to, we kept comparing this to X-Men. She is revealed to, she is very like uh, Professor X in like a really dark way. Like that idea of like, the mentor figure who believes they know what's better, what's best, and is manipulating people to achieve it. And, you know, I also sort of obliquely compared her to Dumbledore. <laughs> um, who's a, that, a version of that character that doesn't really work, ultimately, I don't think. I mean, I like, I like this sort of ending. Like, I like, a, I like a, a, an ambiguous victory. I like a Pyrrhic victory. I don't really see much point in writing victories that aren't Pyrrhic. And, and so this really appealed to me. Like, I liked her whole villain speech at the end. I like the, like, the villain is defeated and it doesn't feel good. <laughs> like, I love that shit. And so this was this really appealed to me. Well, I think that it's, like, the only ending they could have with a bunch of people who are morally ambiguous to begin with. Yeah. I mean, Sakamet eats people. Like, that's yeah. bad. Well, she's like, she's gotten the least real characterization, and she's knocked unconscious for the big moral argument about whether or not to kill Anarchy. I'm interested to see what happens in Sackman, because I feel like there has to be some kind of turn or twist with this character. Because she is, just, right now, just kind of like... And it, I mean, she's Sabretooth, basically, if we want to keep making X-Men comparisons, right? Yeah, I guess. Well, I can't wait to find out what happens in the next... I mean, what? how many volumes? Nine. There's nine. There's nine volumes so, and 45 issues, so we're almost exactly halfway through. So the next volume would be the halfway point. 
Yeah, but it's the start. The next volume was called the is called the Imperial Phase Part One, and then the next volume of that is called the Imperial Phase Part Two. So we're getting into some sort of like cycle or longer arc or something, which I'm interested to see uh, how that's done. Yeah, because I mean, well. Yeah, Anarchy is gone now, and some of the other gods are also gone. Yeah. So who has the power to create new gods? I don't know. We also don't have a clear antagonist anymore. Like, the darkness is a looming threat, but we don't know anything about it. So it'll be interesting to see in this next volume if they introduce a new villain to be the 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 visible antagonizing force, or if Persephone evolves into that or something. Uh, but yeah, so that that's... Uh, do you want to talk about the variant covers? Because... We usually touch on those, and there's a gallery of them at the end, and some of them are cool. There's a uh, a, um, a David Aha one that's like a riff on God Save the Queen, but with Anarchy, which is really cool. It's like a, it looks like a concert poster. Yeah, I like that one a lot. It's, that's about like in like a cutout collage style, and then there's an Ali Moss one that I believe is um, like a 3D modeled uh, bust of Lucifer. Yeah, you know what's interesting is that Lucifer becomes really like this sort of image that's projected like in the advertising for the series. Yeah, but dies at the end of the first volume. Well, that makes me think like what what's really going on? Like, but I mean, I think that makes sense. I mean, it's it's kind of like Ned Stark, right? Like <laughs> Ned Stark dies in the first book, but like they're both Ned Stark. Well, and they also both get put in prison. Uh, but both Ned Stark and Lucifer's, like, actions drive the rest of the plot. Yeah, that's true. I also like that variant cover because it's Lucifer, it's very androgynous, and it also sort of reminds me of, like, that sort of, uh, the art movement that's, like, not Art Nouveau, I mean, you're going to know more about this than I would. Like the pre-Raphaelites almost? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I could see that. It's a yeah, very it's got... romanticized look of the sculpture. It's very soft. It's romantic. It's very androgynous, but very detailed. It's really interesting and well done. I think Ali Moss is the guy who did all of those. I mean, this was years ago, but they were a big deal on the internet for a while. Those, like, um, He did like Penguin Classic covers for... Video games. Oh, okay. Things, you remember? Do you remember seeing those? That I, that I think that's the same guy. He's got. He's like a pretty prominent, like graphic designer, more so than you than like an illustrator or something. I'm pretty sure that's him. Uh, there's also a variant cover that's just a uh, ball and little shorts getting out of a hot tub and a, being served a drink, which is yeah. also pretty good. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, that's the Wicked and Divine Volume Four. Rising action, true to its name. Uh, next episode, we are going to cover Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote. Right? I th- I guess I don't know. Let me actually check my let me check my schedule. We did um, la- the last episode we did was Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yes, correct. Yes. Uh, so. Yeah, we are going to do Breakfast at Tiffany's. And then for the, that is the novella for next month. And then we're going to cover Wicked and Divine Volume 5, The Imperial Face Part 1. Okay, if we're going to read Breakfast at Tiffany's, I'm going to have to get us a sign that says Live, Laugh, Love. That's written on like what looks like distressed wood. 
I don't so. remember what our rationale was for picking this, but I'm interested in reading it. I've read all their Capote stuff, but I, and I've seen the movie, but I don't think I've ever read the novella. All right. So, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Bye.